Hello, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Kate, the producer of Pod Rocket. With me today is Evitar Ailish. Hi, Evitar. How are you doing? Hey, doing fine. How are you? Thanks for being on today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Also with me is uh, Noel from... Uh, he's been on a lot of podcasts lately. Thanks, Noel. You've been crushing it. <laughs> um, uh, no problem. No problem. One of our uh, one of our engineers at LogRocket and uh, one of our hosts on the on the uh, PodRocket team. Um, so Evitar is uh, the creator of Vest. Um, so if you wouldn't mind just telling us kind of what Vest is and we can get started from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, VEST is a form validations library. It's a declarative form validation library. Um, and it draws its syntax and style from unit testing libraries like Mocha or Jest. So if you've done some unit testing in your JS apps, you'll feel very much comfortable uh, using VEST and it will be very similar uh, and very familiar to you. Nice, very cool. So like, I guess I, I've looked at the doc I've looked at the docs and stuff. I feel like I've got a pretty good handle. But one thing that confused me a little bit when I started reading, in in my understanding, was like, yeah, Vest, it, it says it claims to be declarative, but also to pull inspiration from Jess. So like what what does that mean? How do you how do you have a declarative validation library that also is inspired by these testing frameworks? So when writing unit tests, you actually do get quite declarative um, when not specifying the specific test logic, um, like um, constructing mocks or whatever. But you have a very declarative structure inside that library um, specifically. So for example, you have your describe block, uh, and each of the tests is very much declarative and actually even tells you what it's supposed to be doing uh, inside a description for the test. And then inside of it, for example, if we use um, expect, uh, you have ingest, you have expect to be something um, or whatever metric you have there. So very much of what you do inside your unit test, other than the, uh, the construction of the test or construction of your functions, is very declarative. Um, so this is the declarative part that I drew from unit testing to VEST. Gotcha, gotcha. So like the expectations that a whatever whatever your testing framework setting is declarative itself. Yeah, I, I think that's a, probably a good way to put it. I think a lot of people, yeah, exactly. yeah, they, when they're thinking about their tests, they're like, no, I do all this work to get it set up. But it's like, but the meat of your test is just like, is bleh, does it look like this, right? Like, um, yeah, so exactly. once that kind of clicked for me, I was like, oh, I get it, I get it. What what got you kind of interested in this space and how did you, how'd you get on this path? So about in... I think 2015 or 2016, um, with a previous employer, uh, Fiverr.com, uh, we started writing unit testing for our JavaScript tests. And we, um, we also had many forms in the website, and we didn't know how to deal with them. We had to write duplicate form validations. We had validations that did not match in the client and the server. Um, it was really hard to maintain because many form had many interdependent fields. And when we started writing the unit tests and I started learning about the structures back then it was Mocha, um, I saw a pattern that aligned exactly with the way I thought about unit testing. Because basically, as I said before, um, we have this um, big testing suite. Inside of it, we have different tests that what we actually want to do is check that our functions match some expectation or some assertions. And if we take the same concepts uh, into the world of form validation, well, basically, that's exactly the thing we're doing. Um, we have a form which 
could be uh, described as our suite. And inside of it, we have some different asser assertions that we want to run our data against. So we're not testing functions, but whatever we are testing is pretty much or can be pretty much the same structure. Gotcha, gotcha, nice. Yeah, so is there, was there, was was the goal just to make, to kind of ease the, ease the cognitive load of having to think in two different ways? Or were you trying to like, you know, set out and create a module that could be used like in tests and also form validation? Or how did you, like, what, what was the goal when you, when you started? So when I started writing VEST, or actually it was um, the predecessor of VEST, um, it was called Passable. Um, I hmm. recreated it two years ago. Um, but I, I mostly thought, well, it could be a, an interesting idea to experiment on. And the more I started, uh, the more I wrote it, and the more I built uh, the framework itself, I realized there's something in there that's easier to understand and way more expressive than anything I've done before. Because we have, when writing form validation, um, we never even know where to stuff our validation logic because it can be inside our change handler. It can be in a third-party library that's completely separate from our feature and is unaware of our feature. Um, it can be a mix of both. And it's really hard to maintain um, going forward. And the more I wrote Vest and the more I used it, I actually realized um, this is sustainable and actually usable in the long run. And that's what made me um, go fully into Vest and uh, invest more time in it. Nice. Can you give an example of one of those, like uh, an external library that would be needing to do validation on a form? So I don't want to talk about any specific form validation library yeah. because, um, well, I think most of them are actually great and they come to solve um, some real problems and they have some uh, real valid solutions. And I mean, they've proven th themselves to be very useful. I mean, they're, they're, they're being used um, by millions of developers. Um, but I'm going to describe, I think, um, the three types of form validation libraries um, that we have today. And I think Vest is the, is the fourth um, oh, cool. type of form validation library. It's it's like a, a new breed of uh, form validation libraries. So we have um, the original or the basic, the most basic form validation library, which is actually not even a form validation library. It's more like um, functional validators. So we have a function like is number or is email, and we just run some data against that function. And you don't get much control over um, the flow of data inside your feature, or you don't get, get any structure, actually. And I think um, a, a, second, a second type of form validation library is something that's widely used, um, uh, which is um, schema validation libraries. And we have many of those, usually used in the APIs, but I've also seen it used uh, in the client. And basically what you have there is you specify some structure that you want your data to, to follow, um, like for example, a JSON schema. And then you have the username has to be a, a string and, and the password has to be some kind of uh, validation function and whatever you have in there. 
And this is really good and really, really useful, but mostly when dealing with uh, validation on the server. But how do you deal with a schema when, you, when the user types, for example? And what you end up doing either directly or indirectly with a library is whenever the user types is just trim away or remove parts of the validation that did not, um, that, that are not related to what the user just typed. For example, the user typed inside the uh, username field um, also, the password is a part of the schema, so you don't have much way of controlling which field is getting validated. And then you have uh, the third way, or the, uh, the third type of form validation libraries, which is by far, I think, the mostly used today, which is um, UI libraries or UI utilities that manage form state. Um, and these are usually tied to a specific framework um, like React or Vue or Angular. And you have a library that can manage the form state and also the validation. And usually what they give you is either components for uh, inputs or they give you some references that you have to, be, to put on your element or event listeners. And they are really good, but they also come with some cost because um, First, they are tied to one specific framework. So if you have multiple apps, for example, you have multiple apps on the same site, or you use like a micro front-end uh, architecture, whatever that is today, um, but you use a micro front-end architecture with multiple frameworks, you cannot share between them. And also you have some third-party library uh, handling your UI and taking uh, some control over your UI. And then, well, you have to deal with it. and the fourth, uh, the fourth type is basically vest, which I think is unlike all the others. And there are, I think, ten thousand validation libraries on npm. But I think vest is one uh, is just there's just one of those, um, which is um, a validation library that only takes care of validation. It thinks about your form and feature as a whole, and it is uh, very much inspired by unit testing and takes it to the next level with a stateful validation. Gotcha. I guess, yeah, can you, can you go in, into that a little more in, in what you mean by how it, it only cares about validation? So most of the um, UI libraries that manage validation or form state actually take care and handle your form state. So you give them the inputs and they save it and they also give it back to the UI. Most of them, not all of them, of course. Um, but VEST doesn't care much about the data. Of course, you pass in the data to be validated, but you, uh, VEST doesn't care much about the shape of the data, such a, uh, as in schema validation. And it doesn't care much about um, whatsoever, whatsoever happening in the DOM. It only cares about the validation and then you can do some creative stuff because you can express your validation regardless of what's happening in the DOM, but still you can have a lot of control. So you, you can write multiple tests for the same field because it doesn't have to follow some structure. I can have multiple tests for username. And then um, as, uh, as, um, as a result of that, multiple error Error presented to the uh, errors presented to the user just because we can write multiple tests and for just in a single field. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I feel like that delineation is is pretty clear to me when we're comparing them to like the UI libraries that track state or like schema validation libraries. But how does that differ from your first type, like the functional type? Because those feel pretty um, like conceptually disjointed. Like those really are just caring about validation too, in the typical sense, I would say. So these are disjointed, as you as you mentioned, and 
basically you um, you can write whatever it is and whatever you want and you can actually even use them with vest vest doesn't care which assertions you use even though it does come with a lot of assertion libraries or assertion function uh, functions but what best does give you is specify some sort of structure and some sort of internal state for validation. So it doesn't care about the state of the form, but it does care about the validation state. So for example, if I type, if, uh, um, I don't know, I, if I type inside the, um, if I type inside the username field um, and I go out then to see if the username is already taken, and then the user types in another character, best will cancel the previous request and then, um, and then only show the validation for the new request. Um, this is one example. Or without um, a tool like Vest that can handle uh, multiple fields, um, it will be very hard for me to make uh, tests for fields that are cross-dependent or interdependent. For example, password and password confirmation. And when all the tests are disjointed, yes, you get all the control, but you have to assemble everything yourself. Gotcha, gotcha. So is it is it fair to say then that the the advantage that Vest is really like leaning on over those functional like the super old school type is that it's 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 tracking and aware of the validation state itself, even if it doesn't care much about the form state. Yes, exactly, exactly. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, cool. Okay, that's yeah, that's that's a a super a super clean way to put that. Nice, awesome. So, um, yeah, you talked about cases of like uh, asynchronous logic or, or validations that have to call out to a server. Does does VEST provide a lot of utility for like, you know, uh, async calls that may need to be uh, debounced or something like wait until a user type start or stops typing for some amount of time? Um, does it have like those kind of utilities baked in or do you have to like bring your own from Lodash or something? So the most I've seen today um being used and being needed by Vest um, is not debouncing because debouncing is really much, it's very much tied into business logic and how you want your user uh, to experience the website or the application. But Vest does give you some utilities for handling not just async validations, but validations as a whole. So for example, I told you, you can write um, multiple tests for the same field. So for example, let's go back to the username um, example. If I have three tests for username, for example, one, username must not be empty. Second, um, username uh, must be more than three characters. And third, um, username um, is already taken, for example, on the server. Um, Vest, first of all, um, allows you to specify, uh, well, do not run uh, the async test um, unless all the previous tests for that username field uh, already passed. Um, so this is one. And secondly, uh, as you mentioned, um, these async uh, tests can be very costly, and we don't want to just go out to the server for every uh, keystroke type. And we don't always know uh, whenever the user is finished. So what, one thing best does give you is memoization of async tests. So for example, if you run a validation for a username, and then the username uh, the user regrets, uh, types another username, and forgets about uh, writing that first username or even just hits backspace. Um, if we have the result for that previous validation, um, we will not even go to the server to go uh, to see that same result if we already have it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they end up typing the same name that's already been typed, they, they get like a, a local cache memoized version. Nice, nice, very cool. Yeah, are there other good examples of that other than like checking for a username on a server that might, you know, be pertinent 
So this is the most used one, um, and it's common enough to actually have to write a utility for it. Um, but basically everything that has to do with either heavy calculations or um, going to the server like email or username, um, captures if you implement your own, um, whatever it is. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can I can think of a handful of others mm -hmm. potentially, but that's cool. Are there other are there other utilities like that that Vest has kind of like become interested in? You know, maintaining specific logic for this use case. Um, so the other um, main utility that Vest maintains is the each utility. Um, which is basically allowing you to specify um, dynamic fields. So sometimes the user is in the control of the fields being presented or fields being sent because they can add items, remove items, and you cannot know um, in the beginning which fields are going to be validated, so you cannot specify them inside of the suite, um, hard-coded. And VEST has an each utility um, that allows you to basically iterate over an array, um, specifying the different tests that every item in that array has to pass. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, interesting. Yeah, very cool. Is it is it tricky? That, that kind of leads me to an in another interesting point. Like, say there is a list and there's um, dependencies between those items, like validation is concerned about the state of one to test if another is valid. Like, say you can't have two items, I don't know, with the same name, for example, in your list. Can you set up that kind of validation in VEST? So the nice thing about VEST is that at any stage within the validation, um, you can check the intermediate validation result. You can always, and you always have access to whatever's happened before inside that current switch run. So if I run my validation, my async, async validation, and the third test um, is already matching something that I've seen before, yeah, I can do whatever. I mean, I, I'm in control over there um, as a developer. Yeah, I think I think that kind of paints a pretty good picture for me. Uh, I, one question that did come to mind as you were talking a little bit uh, about your inspiration um, and having to maintain different tests, server and client side, was like, what does Vest have support for? Kind of getting those these same validations running in a in a JS or a Node environment in the server. So one of the main things that I think were key to me and uh, and very important to me when building Vest is that it has to be able to run on the server the same way that it runs in the browser. So you can share validations between the client and the server because validations just on a client are not good and validations that uh, don't match with between the server and the client can be even worse because the user will be able to do something that they can be told later they're not supposed to be doing or vice versa, even worse, they'll be able to do something that they shouldn't be doing. Um, so as the, the, uh, as much as you can, I prefer having validations both on the server and the client matching, and you can just run your form validation on the server. It does require one slight change, and you have to unregister your suite between each request because otherwise you'll have a validation suite state uh, being retained between requests. But other than that, I mean, the same um, Redux state on the server, I guess, um, you shouldn't leak yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha, nice. I guess, is that, how uh, involved is that setup? Like, you know, say, say you've got a typical app uh, that's running, you know, JavaScript in some form in the server and client, like how hard is that to set up? 
So creating a, a vest suite is basically running the create function with a callback. Um, that uh, that's all it takes. And what you want to do is just you get a uh, you get a suite object and a function, and it has a property called reset. So whenever you are done validating your suite, you call that reset, and uh, you are all set actually. Nice, nice, very cool, very cool. Um, yeah, so I guess kind of in that vein, like say say you are a, a, a React dev and you're using some other validation library right now um, and you're you know feeling some frustration about it. Is there any, any anything in particular that you might, uh, or any, any particular problems that devs might be facing in their other validation suites that they're using that you would motivate that, or that might motivate them to check out Vest in particular? So first of all, um, my advice to any dev listening to it, um, if it works for you, don't switch. Um, you'll hate you'll hate me for switching. You'll hate the world for switching. Don't switch if it works. Um, but if you are having a hard time using um, your uh, current validation solution, then you should probably try out best. And by um, by having issues working with your current validation uh, solution, um, I would usually talk about bloat um, inside your feature code. So your uh, feature code um, is spaghettied with a lot of validation code. And every time you come to touch it, it's really hard to read or really hard to rewrite. Or even sometimes when making refactors, you have to rewrite everything just to account for the new feature or the new field. Um, and if you want to have some more order inside your validations, then yeah, VAS is probably the right solution because um, I didn't mention it explicitly, but VEST is a validation suite that's completely separate from your feature code. So you can see everything in a glance and you don't have um, some validation logic lying around inside your feature code with the user interaction. Gotcha, yeah, yeah, yeah. very cool, very cool. Um, is there... Is there, yeah, talk, talking about devs that, you know, have these bloated validation layers and like tightly coupled code and you change one thing and it breaks seven things. Are, is that like a, a common pattern that you see out in the wild? Or is it, is it something you've seen in past, like in past lives, past experiences where you have this really hard to manage tightly coupled validation code? Um, it's not just something I see out in the wild. It's something I've been doing um, for years before writing Vest. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm to blame for it as well. Um, and yes, unfortunately, one thing we don't think about um, when writing our features is the validation. And this is sad because the ORM inside our feature is usually the gateway to the server, and it is the contract um, between um, the feature and the server, and the reason we actually built the feature to begin with. Um, and this is the most, also, this is the most um, likely part to break because this is, well, the most interaction heavy part of our app. Uh, this is where um, our users make the most interactions. They type, they touch, they click. Um, so if something breaks, it usually breaks there. Um, so I think it is worth investing in, in a solution that's also reliable and, and helps you make, maintain some order. Yeah, totally. Did this, did this method of thinking where you're kind of, uh, I guess, to your point of like, validation is the closest to the user and pivotal to the function of the app, right? Like it's, the, did that, 
kind of lead to the API decisions that you made when designing Vest, like that developer experience? So the most important point or the most important um, idea I had to retain, um, and I'm reminding you, um, I started writing Vest or Passable back then, um, as drawing in- inspiration from unit testing libraries. So right. my first uh, my first ideal was to stay as close as possible um, to the world of unit testing. Um, and most API decisions in terms of structure, um, syntax and terminology is drawn and should be as close as, as close as possible to unit testing. Gotcha. Did you did you find something about unit testing to be particularly intuitive and that's why you kind of chose it as the baseline or was it more of like, you know, we're doing unit testing anyway, let's try to mirror it. Um so I thought uh, the case of unit testing just makes sense when speaking about a form validation for for the same reason that I mentioned before. Um, you have a suite of different functions that run against some predefined tests that match some expectations. And I mean, if that syntax and that structure works so well for testing your code, why wouldn't it work so well for taste, uh, testing your data or um, forms? Um, yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of thinking about that as well. Like, I, f- I feel like seldom am I, am I writing, you know, in my unit testing framework of choice and struggling with the API. Like, it always feels pretty, you know, like it's it's doing what I want it to do pretty painlessly. Um, so I, I think I, I agree with that decision. I, I was just curious, like, if that was a, a conscious thing or if you've been thinking about it ahead of time. Um, but yeah, that's that's interesting to hear. Um, for other people kind of like interested in this, in this space, um, writing developer tools that are kind of in this in this tier like you know, even unit testing frameworks validation libraries anything like that where you're you know like tools for devs is there any advice you would give them or not just not just validation or unit testing um any library at all i think yeah really really um, anything yeah mm-hmm. yeah because i i think this is one of the most interesting parts of software development because um as engineer we rarely i think uh think um solve hard engineering problems but we usually write code for other people to use and we solve human engineering problems and it's a tricky one to get right because if you do something wrong especially in the world of open source it is immensely difficult um, to fix later because more often than not whatever you add into your api whatever it is library or framework or tool um it will already be in use by somebody out there. So you have to get it right from the get-go. And I think there are three things um, and three goals when writing um, when writing uh, tools for other developers, APIs for other developers. And first of all, the tool you write has to actually work. It has to do whatever it's pr- it promises to do because other than, uh, if it doesn't, um, then it doesn't even have a right to exist. Um, it, it comes to solve some problem or some uh, or answer some need, and if it doesn't, well, it shouldn't exist at all. Um, yeah, but sure. the two, yeah, um, but the two others um, are more important important in terms of design. Um, and for a second, um, it has to be easy and intuitive to use, and and um, this is a big part how how to make something uh, intuitive. Maybe I'll get to it. 
and um, also it has to be safe to use and hard to abuse. Um, you cannot let your consumers harm themselves or it shouldn't be dangerous for them to use. And when you build your API, you're teaching your consumers a language or a pattern. Um, you don't want to have them go to the documentation every time uh, you, uh, they want to use your library or tool. And instead, you have to be, uh, try to be at least, consistent, um, use similar naming and terms. Um, and if you can, also build on top of existing knowledge. For example, as I did in BEST, I tried to build on top of uh, the developers' already existing knowledge of unit testing libraries and frameworks, so they have a very, very easy learning curve um, when trying out BEST. It's so similar to unit testing libraries, actually, that if I just hook a CLI to it, VEST can be used as a unit testing library. So it's pretty cool. And, and regarding, uh, uh, regarding the tool being safe to use and hard to abuse, I think um, you have to build it and design it with safety in mind. So you have to, yeah, sometimes you do have to allow your consumers to do dangerous things, but if you do, you have to let them know it's dangerous. So if you think about, I don't know, React, they give you uh, dangerously, dangerously set in our HTML. You can't use it without knowing uh, you may be doing something harmful. So it's really important. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. I, you know, that's that's a good example, probably, of a of a dangerous uh, like a dangerous kind of um, surface point in an API. What's 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 an what's an ex example of something that's like easy to abuse in in APIs that you're trying to avoid when doing API design? Like, how how do you make your you know uh, surface hard to abuse? Um, you can make the surface hard to abuse and hard to. Abuse is doesn't necessarily mean do evil things. And I, I, I usually think people are good and try to do good things and have good intent. Um, mm -hmm. But hard to abuse usually means doing something they're not supposed to be doing um, with your tool. For example, using internal APIs that are not a part of the documentation or the contract. And to make something harder to abuse, you usually have to think about those as well because everything in your signature, even though it's not a part of the contract, everything exposed to the consumer, every uh, perceivable, uh, perceivable behavior will be used by somebody. And then when you want to make some refactor or when people start breaking because you made some change because you were unaware that they are going to use it, well, they abused it even though they didn't mean to. Because we're developers, we have magic powers. We can see code and we can use it, even if it was not intended to be used. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is a point we've, we've kind of landed on with a couple of our recent podcasts. Like we were talking about it with like the internal view APIs that uh, Evan was having trouble like getting devs. Like the big libraries were using these internal APIs that nobody was really supposed to be using, so they were having all these problems. Um, you know, like getting those libraries to upgrade. Um, and yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting point. And like, I feel abuse isn't like necessarily evil. It's just devs have mm -hmm. feeling the need to like reach into the internals of something and, you know, use it in some way that wasn't necessarily prescribed or like the intent of the API. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's super interesting. Um, one, I guess, to, the, to this point of like all these difficult, all these things you have to keep in mind when setting out and writing an API, especially for an open source library, like you said, of uh, like everything's got to be pretty tight in V1. 
how say you're a new dev you're interested in building tooling like this like how do you how do you get over the fear of messing something up like how do you get to v1 that just seems so scary um yeah yeah it's really scary i remember um releasing my first version of passable um in 2016 or 17 and well it sucked um and it took <laughs> me um i think and and just two days later i realized everything was garbage and i made a full um a, a full major version change um uh, and I actually did it to, uh, to Passable seven times until I uh, landed on a viable API. And this what led me to actually understand um, the need of writing good API from the get-go, but also fear not, because like everything in software development, API design as well, I think everything there is a trade-off. Um, you don't always know the right solution and you don't always have the right answer. And when you don't, just leave stuff out. If you don't have the correct solution yet, it may be okay. Um, it took me four years um, to add um, a simple function to Vest, um, which is is valid, um, a validation framework that for four years didn't have the is valid function uh, because I didn't land on the right solution from the get go, and I didn't have the need for it yet. Um, so if you don't uh, add something, uh, you will never rec regret for adding it. Um, and it's always a trade-off uh, and you are uh, the domain expert in whatever field that you are building the, the library for and you have to balance it. Is, that, is it easy to maintain motivation for you? Like when you, when you realize that you've made some big underlying mistake to the API, because I think it's, it's a pretty common pattern. Like somebody's got a project, they're working on it. They realize they've done something fundamentally pretty wrong at a low level. And they're like, I don't even want to keep working on this anymore. Mm -hmm. Cause there's like, like, how do you, how do you overcome that feeling? So uh, when you are small and people don't know about your library, um, well, uh, there is no harm done. Um, I mean, you can always fix it, bump another uh, major version, and that's okay. Nobody uses it yet. Um, when it's big and there are real implications and people are breaking because of your API decisions, it's a bit harder. And there's not much to do other than offer support, update the documentation, and try, even, even if you have some uh, have made some bad decisions in the past, try to fix them by adding um, alternative APIs or other solutions to your library or to your tool so people have the choice and add, I don't know, a deprecation notice in the documentation for whatever it is um, that you're doing. And also, if it causes some errors, make sure these errors are very descriptive. So for example, um, errors are kind of documentation too. And each and every error, um, especially in a bad API or badly designed API, um, should include at least some of the following. What went wrong? Um, what happened? Um, what could be the cause of it? Maybe um, alternative solutions or a possible solutions for that problem. And if possible, even a link to the documentations. And if all these exist inside your error message, then yeah, um, you've made a bad API decisions in the past, um, but you are allowing your users to easily fix them. So I'm I see Vest is on four one one right now. Like that's the that's master. I think. How do you decide when you have like a you know a flaw large enough to 
justify a major version number bump? Um, a version, uh, a major version is usually, I don't think about it um, as like a bug fix. Um, and it has sure. to be more strategic. When I want to add like a major API change, I also want it to come with like uh, a bag of presents for my consumers. <laughs> so a sure. lot of many new cool features that I want them to use and actually promote them uh, to uh, to use the new version. Um, so I can't point the finger or put the finger on one specific, um, on, on just a specific indicator that a version, uh, a, a major version should be, um, should be bumped. But usually when I accumulated enough improvements and I've made a decision that some previous decisions that I've made are not, uh, uh, no longer good or do not satisfy the current needs of the library, then yeah, um, when all these um, are met, I'll, I'll just update the major version. Gotcha, gotcha. And I guess, yeah, do you, do you kind of adhere to the Semver practice of like, in those major versions, you can, you can introduce breaking changes as long as they're, you know, like well broadcast? Yeah, I try to abide by Semver. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, just, yeah. just you know, kind of curious, curious how you thought about that. I guess more broadly, when it comes to like maintaining a large, an open source library with lots of eyes on it, um, like how do you find that experience? Is it is it stressful? Does it energize you? What, what's that like? I really enjoy it. Um, I mean, it's much better than having nobody look at what you write. Um, so mm -hmm. this is um, this is the, actually the hardest uh, challenge. I mean. I remember when writing my first open source contribution, wherever it was, I mean, and writing my first library, um, I was like, okay, now everybody's gonna laugh at my um, my ugly code and my stupid code. And for, I don't know, a year and a half, nobody even cared, um, which was the biggest hurdle to, to overcome. Um, and now when I actually see um, the star count uh, going up and the user count going up and the downloads going up, I'm actually energized by that. And when I get an issue, uh, a GitHub issue either, uh, or even on Discord, somebody asking a question or saying uh, there is a bug or something doesn't work correctly, I'm excited because, well, um, I'm doing something that's helping people and they care enough about it uh, to actually come report back to me. Nice, nice. Um, it's interesting that you bring up Discord. How do, how do you find kind of managing and curating a community for an open source project, like via a Discord server? I'm terrible that at that. Feel? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm terrible at that. Um, I'm, I'm more of an engineer than a community leader. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm trying. I, I've set up um, different rooms and channels, whatever it's called on Discord, Discord mm -hmm. um, uh, for the different purposes. Um, I added the link to, to the documentation of Vast. And sometimes I see new people dropping by, but I'm not really good at promoting it um, in the community. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like I found uh, just through personal experience and hanging out in other like kind of dev tooling communities, you end up with a lot more of the same question being repeated in those kind of like more chat esque channels. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's any interesting takeaways here, but yeah, I feel like there there is much more of a community management piece happening in those like more real time communication platforms than something like GitHub, where it's a little more you know form like and you have issues mm -hmm. and it's like more curated. Um, so yeah, was just was was 
curious if you if you struggled with that at all. But I'm glad that you you find it exciting and like it motivates you a little bit. It does totally does. As you were talking, we just had um, Ash Jeffson. Uh, I think his recording was yesterday. Um, he's the creator of uh, Benthos. Um, he was talking about uh, maintaining open source and the importance of avoiding burnout. Um, just because, like with a lot of other projects, uh, interests, there's like physical limitations um, with kind of web development and open source projects. You don't really have like as long as you are awake and have internet, you can <laughs> work on it. So I guess how do you? What are some strategies around avoiding burnout um, that that you that you take? That is not actually the only project I maintain. I have um, I have a few. Um, and Vest is not even the most popular one that I maintain. It is in terms of star count, but not in terms of uses, uh, usages. Um, I have a React component uh, for um, emo for an emoji picker that has like thousands of users in different apps, and I always constantly um, get new issues and bugs because this is something people actually see on their web page. So it's much easier to detect bugs. And I've decided that I'm unable to keep maintaining it because if I would maintain both this library and Vest at the same time, um, I would, as you said, burn out. And what I decided to do is uh, give it out to the community. So I'm at the moment mentoring a couple of new developers into um, taking the project full time. Um, and this is the way I see basically reducing the amount of um, the, reducing the amount of responsibility and time you have to allocate to all of your projects and just focus on whatever gives you um, the best energy and most motivation, which at the moment is VEST. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. Awesome. Um, yeah, is there anything that you would like to plug or want um, want to point our, our listeners to? Um, I'll just say that if you're interested in trying out VEST or even contributing to VEST um, in terms of documentation, code, examples, because I didn't mention it, but VEST can be used with any framework out there, any UI framework. Um, so if you want to contribute to VEST in any way, feel free to drop in the GitHub or the Discord chat. Um, I'm trying to be available there, and I really, really enjoy any traffic going in. Awesome. And we will include those links in our show notes, as always. Um, so go check those out. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll see you around. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket. <laughs>